A-B-A Madrid. West Canyon High Welcome to the ABA Wizard Podcast. This is Kylan Heiner. Uh, and today we have Dr. Casey Nottingham on uh, to talk about instructive feedback and her recent journal article in, in the Journal of Applied Behavior Analysis about instructive feedback. Now, if you're like me, you've probably not heard about instructive feedback. Uh, and uh, I, I want to make sure that our listeners don't assume that that means it's not important. It's really going to improve our instructional efficiency. And so uh, we have Dr. Casey Nottingham on. Uh, A little bit of information about her. She completed her undergraduate coursework at Denison University in Ohio under the mentorship of Dr. Gina Dow, and she completed her master's and doctoral work at Caldwell University in New Jersey under the mentorship of Dr. Jason Vladescu. Currently, Dr. Nottingham is a clinical director of ABA Collective, an agency in New Jersey that provides in-home services to toddlers and children diagnosed with ASD. Uh, She's also a course instructor within the online master's in ABA program at Ball State University. Uh, Dr. Nottingham's current research and clinical interests include evaluating ways that practitioners can increase instructional efficiency improving staff training and relationship building skills, and increasing health and wellness behaviors in adults. Uh, So we are very excited to have Dr. Nottingham on. Uh, Thank you for joining us, Dr. Nottingham. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be on. And I have to ask, uh, how long have you been teaching uh, at Ball State University? Um, So we are coming to a close on the spring semester, and I just started um, last fall. So this is only my second semester, Um, and I have been teaching the advanced ABA course and the research methods course, and those two courses have been great. Um, So, so far, I'm loving it. That's awesome. I ask because um, I went there a few years ago. Oh, <laughs> so if you had been there for, cool. you know, four or five, six years, then maybe we cross paths, but, um, no, no, I'm still pretty new there. That's cool. It was a great program. I liked it. I learned a lot. Um, now looking at your areas of interest with research, uh, I see instructional efficiency on there. Uh, and today we're talking about instructive feedback. Uh, I'm guessing those are connected, right? Instructive yes, feedback definitely. is, is you know, a, a big way of instructional efficiency. And it's kind of embarrassing. I, before I read this article, I did not know what instructive feedback was. <laughs> and so a I'm glad lot of people don't. <laughs> well, it's not, it's not like something that's, that's on the task list. I don't even recall it being in Cooper, but I, I could be wrong. Uh, and so I, I, uh, you know, a lot of my work and my focus is, focusing on the task list, helping people learn it. So I hadn't learned this and I, I'm guessing a lot of people haven't. So um, I'd right, love right. I, I'd love an explanation from you. Like what is instructive feedback? Uh, what's the difference between instructive feedback and discrete trial instruction? Any, any info on this you can give me would be great. Sure, yeah. And I think you make a good point that, um, you know, a lot of what we learn in the task list is more specifically related to discrete trial instruction. Um, 
with that being, you know, very centered around um, having this contrived situation where we have a one-to-one um, arrangement with one instructor and one learner, and we can kind of minimize our distractions in the teaching environment, and we can really individualize our teaching procedures in that discrete trial arrangement um, because we do have just one client. So we can individualize our prompts. We can individualize our uh, prompt fading, our reinforcement system. Yeah. Something. Um, and that is what, um, you know, a lot of practitioners learn, a lot of, a lot of students learn. And, you know, I went through my coursework and I did not learn about instructive feedback until my advisor, um, Dr. Jason Vladescu, uh, introduced me to this topic. Um, and, you know, he kind of explained it as um, this modification to discrete trial instruction or like a variation on discrete trial okay. instruction. Yeah. Um, so it, it looks similar um, in that you still have one instructor, you still have one learner, um, you know, for the most part, there have been some um, research studies that look at instructive feedback with small groups and oh, things really? like that. Oh, that's yeah, cool. which is it's really cool because you can kind of further increase efficiency. Um, oh, yeah. but, you know, for the most part, it's been um, done with one one learner and one instructor at a time. Um, but it really gets at modifying how you present your targets. So with discrete trial instruction, you present your antecedent stimulus, you get a response from your learner and you present some kind of consequence. So, you know, that might be reinforcement if the learner gets it right. And it might be error correction if the learner gets it wrong. Um, with instructive feedback, what you're going to modify about that discrete and trial instruction arrangement is you're going to add in these extra stimuli, basically, that you're not going to teach. So whereas in a traditional discrete trial arrangement, every trial, I might have one teaching target. Um, with instructive feedback, I'm going to start adding extra stimuli and I'm not going to teach those. Um, and by, so what do you now, mean by teach those? Like you'll, you'll, so, do you still give them an opportunity to, uh, to give a response or you just give them the antecedent stimulus and then you, you move on? Yeah. So I'll, I'm going to give you an example because okay, I think it makes help. it a little more clear with kind of a concrete example. So with discrete challenge instruction, I might be teaching tact and I'll say, what is it? If the learner doesn't respond, I'm going to say, say pencil. And the learner says pencil and we move on. So I'm including prompts. I'm including reinforcement. Yes. If I say, say pencil and they say, shoe, I'm going to maybe run an error correction uh, yes. procedure there. With instructive feedback, I'm still including that teaching target. So I'm going to still present um, what is it? Say pencil. They say pencil. I provide reinforcement. Then I'm including another additional target where maybe I hold up another card. It's a different target. And I just present a picture of a house and I say, this is a house. And here the learner doesn't have to say anything. I'm not prompting a response. 
if they don't say anything, I just put the card down and I move on to the next trial. Okay. If they do say something, so maybe they say house. Okay. That's fine. I'm not providing any reinforcement. I'm just moving on. If I say this is a house and they go, that's not a house. That's a boat. I'm still just ignoring it and moving on. We're really just presenting these extra targets. And the cool thing about it is that, you know, the amount of time that it takes to hold up just an additional piece of information and tell the learner what that is, is minimal, you know, to hold up a target and say like, this is a house, this is a shoe, this is a boat or a carrot's a vegetable um, is really minimal. Um, you know, you might have, yeah, seconds. Yep, exactly. Um, the absolutely amazing thing about this that just like blows my mind every single time it works is that like those seconds, you know, they might add up to like a, a few seconds over the course of like a teaching session. But if the learner learns all of those extra targets, plus the ones that you taught, you've just saved so much time because they've learned double the amount of targets than if you would have only been directly teaching oh, your targets in a standard discrete trial format. Yes. No, I, I love this. I'm, I'm thinking about how big of an issue it is, how, how important time is uh, as a practitioner that uh, we don't have nearly as much time with the clients as we'd like. And that's either due to how much funding they have or due to their availability, our availability, uh, and being able to take advantage of, of every minute in there is, is huge. Um, so I, I really like this. This is some really cool stuff. So with this current study, uh, that was just published, uh, what were you trying to figure out now that we know what instructive feedback is, what with instructive feedback, were you trying to figure out with this study? Okay, so we've seen, you know, this procedure, instructive feedback has been effective um, for teaching new targets, and it's it's been shown to be um, a procedure that has increased, you know, instructional efficiency for, for kids with autism, um, yeah. and there's there's been a number of studies that have come out that have shown that and in those studies what has typically taken place is that for every trial in a session a teaching target's presented and then right after that teaching target secondary target is presented so those secondary targets are the ones that are not taught or those extra stimuli that are presented um there has been um before um, we did this study for my dissertation, there has been some research outside of, um, you know, looking at how this would re would relate to kids with autism. There has been some research that looked at, could we potentially just present these extra targets maybe intermittently? So not present them every single trial in a session have a lot of the studies in the past, have they been more on a, uh, a continuous presentation of a one-to-one? -one? Is that? Exactly. Oh, okay. Yes. Yep. So most of these studies that have been done, um, especially with um, kids with autism, 
um, have been done on that continuous schedule. So every time a teaching target is presented, a secondary target is also presented. One of those additional non-targeted stimuli are also presented. Okay. Um, there has been a study where they looked at, um, can we present these additional targets, you know, about every four trials? And would the kids also learn those targets? And would it be any more efficient? Because now we're really cutting down on how many times we're presenting targets. Yeah. Um, that study, though, was done with kids uh, who were not on the autism spectrum. Um, they were, it was done in 1998, and it was with... Um, participants who were reported to have um, moderate intellectual disabilities. Um, so what we were really looking to do with this study was see, you know, could we replicate those results with children with autism? So, you know, kind of the, the impacts, if we could, would be like, instead of, you know, presenting continuously these additional targets, which we already know increases efficiency. If we can present them every other trial or even every four trials, maybe that can even increase instructional efficiency way more, which would be, again, just. Well, that, that would you know, be amazing, amazing to, for our, yeah. It would be amazing to be able to, uh, you know, see results with only having to present them, you know, on a, on a four to one ratio there. So to clarify a four to one or a four to two ratio, um, that's referring to the number of, uh, primary targets, the main targets that you're focusing on, uh, to the number of times that you train a secondary target. And so it's, yeah. it's, it's not saying you're training four primary targets and you're only training one secondary target, it's saying you're going to train the one primary target four times, but we're only going to uh, present the secondary target one time. Is that right? Exactly. So, you know, just as an example, like you said, for the, the four to one condition, um, you know, we'll have three different targets and three different secondary targets. And every primary target is going to be presented four times during a session. And then every secondary target is only going to be presented one time during that session. So when you think about that in terms of efficiency, if we can have kids learn those secondary targets, only presenting them one time, the amount of instructional time spent just presenting a, a target one time a session um, if they were able to learn that, that's that's huge. It's exciting from a from a research perspective, but from a a, a practitioner perspective, um, the amount of time that we could save teaching is is great. Well, because it's double efficiency. Because it's it's not only you know you're you're presenting the stimulus uh, four times less often, but you're also just presenting the stimulus and not training on it. And so that's, uh, you know, like double efficiency there that is uh, really going to make a difference if we find that it could be effective is really going to make a difference in 
uh, the, the interventions that we do with our clients. So, um, let's, let's talk a little bit about how we assess this. So I, I noticed in the article, you used an alternating treatments design, uh, with a baseline. Um, and so if, if you don't mind, could you go over what were each of the conditions that we were comparing, uh, during the study? Sure. So we had um, what we called the continuous condition. So in that condition, it's kind of what we were talking about earlier in terms of what has typically been done in these instructive feedback studies. So during that continuous presentation condition, every time a primary target or a, a target that was directly taught um, prompts were used, reinforcement was used. Every time a primary target was taught, a secondary target was also presented. Um, so, you know, during that condition, we have seen in previous studies that kids will learn the primary targets and kids will also learn secondary targets kind of in the absence of direct teaching for those secondary targets. Um, but what we were really interested in with this study were the next two conditions. So the intermittent conditions, we wanted to see if kids would learn um, the secondary targets in those conditions and if those conditions would be more efficient. So in the intermittent four to two presentation condition, um, we had teaching targets that were presented four times during every session and then secondary targets or those additional targets that were not taught and they were presented two times during every session so um you can think of that um as like secondary targets that were presented every other trial um and then finally we had an intermittent four to one presentation condition, which we kind of talked about where we had primary targets that were presented four times during every session. And then the secondary targets were only presented one time a session. Um, All right. So you're, you're comparing, uh, let's see there, you have the continuous intermittent four to two intermittent four to one, and then a control condition, right? And so those four, you're going to be comparing seeing which schedule here is going to create the most efficient uh, learning. Is that right? Right. And, you know, in the control condition, we were just presenting targets and asking uh, the participants what they were. We never did any teaching um, to those targets. Um, I I do have a question. So during the study, uh, when you are testing for a secondary target, um, Mm -hmm. when so you present the stimulus, do you just say, oh, this is a car? Or do you say, what is this? Do you ask them and give them a chance to answer? Or are you just telling them? And if they repeat it, it counts as a a learned response. So that's a great question. We have what are called secondary target probes because we need to somehow know, like, are are these kids learning what we're presenting during the teaching trials? Yes. Um, So we we can tell during the teaching trials if they're learning the primary targets because we're asking, what is this? And then do they answer correctly? Do they answer incorrectly? And we can get our data there. During the teaching trials, 
when we present the secondary targets, like you said, we're just presenting a picture and we're saying, you know, this is an artichoke. Um, but we need to know if we then present that and we ask them, what is this? Are they going to give us the correct answer? Um, so prior to every teaching session that we ran, we ran what we called secondary target probe, where we went to the participants, the secondary targets for that condition. And we would hold up the picture and we would ask them, what is this? And we would give them a chance to respond. Um, if they gave us the right answer, we didn't give them any feedback. Um, if they gave us the wrong answer, we didn't give them any feedback. If they gave us no answer, we didn't give them any feedback. Um, but we did score whether they responded correctly, incorrectly, um, because we needed to know, are they learning these, are they learning these targets that yeah, we're not, you're not, you're not asking, what is this? You're just telling them this is a car and then. The probes will help you see, like, are they actually learning? And during the probes, exactly. you're not you're not doing any teaching during the probes. You're not uh, you're not correct. telling them if they're correct or not. You're just seeing exactly. if they know. Okay. Yep. And we we conducted those probes before the teaching sessions because we didn't want to run them, you know, right after a teaching session because potentially, like, we could have just pulled them for you know, however long these sessions lasted, like this is an artichoke, this is a water bottle, this is, it's been so long, I don't remember what the exact targets <laughs> are, but they're in the paper. But, um, you know, we could have just told them over and over again what the targets were. And then right after those probes, and they could have, you know, remembered what the targets were. And then a day or two goes by, and then they don't remember them anymore, you know? So yeah. we wanted to make sure that we ran those probes before we did any teaching. That, um, that makes sense. So, so, so this is very, so it's very conservative. It's, you know, erring on the side of, you know, let's give them time and see if they actually remember this. Um, that's very cool. Uh, so you, you run this study, you're comparing all of these conditions, uh, and you had... Was it two participants? We had two participants and we um, we ran through the evaluation one time. And then once that was finished, we ran through it a second time for replication um, with new targets. Okay. Yes. That makes sense. Um, and and what did we see? Walk me through the results here. What, uh, what were the findings? Okay. So... You know, a few main findings um, that I think are kind of the most important from the results that we found are that, you know, both participants learned the teaching targets. Um, so those primary targets. So there's always the possibility that, you know, we put in something like instructive feedback. We change discrete trial teaching some way. Um, and that change the discrete trial teaching might interfere with them learning the primary the teaching targets. targets. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we do not want that to happen. No. <laughs> um, so, you know, that was, that was good that we did not see that. So, so that did not happen. You know, they that were... did not okay. happen, um, which is a great first step. So we saw that, you know, across both participants and in both evaluations, they learned the teaching targets. So instructive feedback didn't interfere with our teaching. 
Then we also saw that both participants in both of their evaluations learned the secondary targets in all of the conditions. So it didn't matter if it was continuous or intermittent presentation. They learned those targets in the absence of direct teaching. So this is kind of in support of other um, instructive feedback research that has been done that this instructive feedback procedure is an effective procedure for, um, you know, kids learning things in the absence of direct teaching. And then, you know, what I think is one of the, the most important takeaways from this study is that in all four of our comparisons here, so for both the first evaluation that we did for both participants and then in the replication evaluation that we did for both participants, either the four to two intermittent condition or the four to one intermittent condition was most efficient in teaching. So, and, and how do you measure efficiency? How do you know if it's because effective, like it's just, you know, did they, could they get to the mastery level? Uh, how, how do we determine if it's efficient? Yes. So we measured efficiency by looking at the mean training time per target. So basically what that means is how long did it on participants to learn each target that was presented or taught? So the total number of targets, primary and secondary combined, um, and then the total training time. Um, So we're looking at an average here. And across all four of these comparisons, it was consistent that the continuous presentation was the longest in terms of mean training time, Um, which, you know, is when you're thinking about like this procedure, instructive feedback already results in more efficient learning for, for some individuals with ASD. If we can take it another step further and implement an intermittent presentation schedule, and that might result in an even more efficient learning, um, I think, you know, for me, that was the biggest takeaway. Yes. Um, I think, you know, there is some room here to talk about who this, who this will work for and maybe what are some potential limitations. Um, There weren't that big of differences, you know, between the intermittent four to one and intermittent four to two in terms of the mean training time um, for either participant. Um, It actually changed between the first evaluation and the second evaluation. But, you know, for me, the the key takeaway that I got from this was that the intermittent presentation condition, what, regardless of which one it was, was more efficient than the continuous presentation condition for these two participants. Yes, this is huge. This is big. How, why is... Yeah, it was so exciting. Why is this not like, why is instructive feedback not more widely known in the field? Like this is, this is big. I think, you know, this is kind of a newer area of research that people in our field are are getting into. Um, the other thing that I think is that it's not easily accessible. So, 
you know, you read a study like this and it has big implications, but there's still a lot that we don't necessarily know. Um, so I see results like this and I think, wow, this is great. Like, wouldn't it be cool if I could do that with all of my clients? But the reality is I can't do this with all of my clients. It's not, you know, like it's not going to be effective with all of my clients. So really going forward, we need to figure out like, who is this going to be effective for? What are, you know, the different characteristics um, that, that we need to look for in our clients that would indicate like we should try an intermittent condition versus a continuous condition or even that we should try instructive feedback versus just standard discrete trial instruction. Those are some things that, um, you know, we've talked about a little bit um, in my course of like my master's program and my um, doctoral program in terms of like starting to try and identify some different, some different characteristics and uh, repertoires that are important. Yeah. How do we, if, well, I, I have a couple of questions. Um, and so let me start with just one. Uh, let's say that there is a practitioner listening in here. Uh, they're, they're super excited like I am right now. You know, this is groundbreaking, instructive feedback. I've never heard of this. I want to try it. Where do they start? What do they do? What are some practical applications of instructive feedback that might be a good starting place for those of us excited to try this out? You know, I think the first thing is to really try and see if there are. So one of the things that we didn't talk about is um, the echoic data that we took Oh yeah. Um, during this study. And several other studies have um, taken echoic data. Um, and basically what that means is when we presented the secondary targets during teaching, did the participant correctly echo what we said? So if I held up a picture of a spoon and I said, this is a spoon, um, even though the participants aren't required to say anything, we did record whether they said spoon or this is a spoon or that's a spoon or something along those lines of repeating what I said. And almost 100% of the time for both participants, they did engage in those correct colleagues. So starting to, I think, you know, these are very exciting procedures, especially when you think about, you know, how much you could increase your efficiency as a practitioner, um, really starting to kind of identify, like, would this, would this work for for the clients that I'm thinking about, do they have an echoic repertoire? Is the skill that I want to teach um, you know, adaptable to, to this procedure? Typically this is done in a, you know, one-to-one -one format. There has been some research in the small group format, but like there are considerations that, you know, need to be taken into account when you're thinking about the resources that you have. Um, so yes. if, if you're teaching in a classroom um, and you are responsible for, you know, a number of kids and you want to individualize your materials and that's going to take way more time, um, you really have to start thinking about like the balance between taking all of that time to individualize your materials versus like the offset that you would get for, um, 
you know, the instructional efficiency increase here. Yeah. If it takes you an hour to prepare for this and it saves a total of like three minutes of instructive time, then it, it might not have, you know, been uh, more efficient necessarily. But if we're able to apply this to uh, several clients and, it, and it's a quick, easy way to apply it to them and you're saving all this time, like this is an amazing uh, procedure that we need to consider. And that that actually answered my second question. I was going to ask, what should we be looking for when identifying a client uh, who might benefit from this? And so you mentioned they like an echoic repertoire that and probably attending skills. Those are some prerequisites yes. that that a client would need to be able to do this. Is, is there anything else that I'm missing as far as what we should look at uh, for um, a client who would be able to pick up on this? Yeah, you know, at attending skills are another important one, especially if you are, you know, talking about, so in this study, we taught um, tacting pictures. So if there isn't a strong attending repertoire, um, particularly to, you know, those tangible materials, um, there's a good chance that, you know, you might not see the acquisition that we saw in this study. Um, the other thing that I would say too, is that um, you wanna kind of consider what your most important goals are. So a lot of the research in this area of instructive feedback has been done teaching um, verbal behavior targets. So things like tax and intraverbals, um, there has been some research um, recently looking at teaching um, play skills. Um, but if you're really focused, maybe you're working with, and I just automatically go to this because I work with really little kids, but like maybe you're focused on teaching um, like parallel play, you're focused on teaching gross motor imitation. Um, there hasn't really been a lot of research related to those skills in terms of instructive feedback. So um, if you're not there yet in terms of teaching these types of skills like tax and intraverbals, even though this might be a really exciting area of research, um, you you really need to think about like what is most important for your client at that time. And maybe this is something you can look to down the road. Um, but again, it's not going to be something that's appropriate for every client that we work with um and if in terms of their and current goals they're unsure and it's you know a new skill that's not really out there in the literature maybe write a research study app let's let's get more of this in the in the uh journal articles or in the literature and let's uh kind of expand our knowledge on this it, it seems like yeah uh, this this has been out in other fields um i i think there have been publications in education before there were publications in uh behavior journals. Um, yes. And, you know, so it is a little bit newer for us, but um, if if people are excited about it, let's, let's add to this research. I know there has been a lot of really nice research coming out on this. Um, like you said, I do think there needs to be more research that comes out on it because there is, you know, a lot of stuff that we don't know in terms of like, maintenance, um, generalization to other skill types. So 
we found these really exciting results with um, the intermittent presentation schedules, but who's to say, you know, if I present these targets on an intermittent basis and they learn them, it's really efficient that, you know, maybe a week, two weeks, a month, two months down the road, they remember all the teaching targets. Maybe they even remember the continuous secondary targets, but they don't remember the um, targets that were presented intermittently. So we definitely need some more research along those lines. Um, so I'm hoping to see some of that come out soon. Dr. Nottingham, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure. I've learned so much. I know everybody at home has learned a lot. And for those of you at home listening, check out the article on Java. If you're a BACB, you have access via the BACB portal. Uh, and if you're not, if you're a student, you have access uh, most likely through your university. Uh, and so check it out and uh, be sure to join us next time on ABA Wizard to get your weekly dose of research.